Thanks for joining us and supporting Vicky Doe Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about breaking the taboo. Let's talk about a hard-to-talk-about subject, and that is bladder problems in women, more specifically, urinary incontinence. According to the Mayo Clinic, urinary incontinence is a common problem, and it can happen at any time in your life. But we first need to talk about it. Joining us is Lucy Brett, an author of her book called PMSL, or How I Literally Piss Myself Laughing and Survive the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. Lucy takes us on her personal journey with urinary incontinence and talks about how she found the courage to talk about it and seek help and treatment. We are so happy that she is sharing her story so that other women can know that you are not alone. You can get the help, strength, and support. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks-Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks-Bright. So how are you? <laughs> how are you? I am fine. We are here. It's a beautiful day outside, right? It is. It actually is a little warmer than I thought it was going to be when I walked out this morning. But yeah, sun is shining, so that's all good. That's all good, at least for now, right? <laughs> yeah, at least for now, right. We will take it. We will take it. I will take it. Well, today we talk about breaking the taboo, a hard-to-talk-about subject for women, and that is talking about bladder problems. Now, we are going to talk specifically on urinary incontinence, meaning lack of bladder control. And yes, we are breaking the taboo of talking about it today. And we are encouraging women, if you have, if you are having bladder control problems Go and get effective treatment and help from your health care providers without feeling ashamed and embarrassed. And so according to the Mayo Clinic, urinary incontinence, that is the loss of bladder control, is a common and often embarrassing problem. Now, the severity ranges from occasionally leaking urine when you cough or sneezing to having an urge to urinate and that's so sudden and strong, you don't get to a toilet in time. And so it occurs most often as people get older. However, urinary incontinence can happen at any time of your life as you age. If urinary incontinence affects your daily activities, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate to see your doctor. For most people, simple lifestyle changes or medical treatment can ease discomfort or stop urinary incontinence. There are specific exercises that you can do as well to strengthen your pelvic floor muscles to help with controlling your bladder. And these are called Kegel exercises. And I will talk more about those exercises later in the show. We have today joining us Lucy Brett calling in from London to share with us her story. Lucy Brett has worked as a film journalist and regulator for many years. And now she has written a book, a memoir called PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. 
Now, she takes us on her personal journey with urinary incontinence, which caused her to feel like her life had ended because she felt embarrassed, ashamed, and broken. However, Lucy Brett tells us, you know, what treatments and interventions that she went through, and she will be giving us tips on how to navigate through it and give guidance on where women can find help and support if they are suffering as well. And so we can't wait to hear from her, right, Dee? Absolutely. It should be really, really fascinating. Yes, yes, yes. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast show. It's all about health and fitness. Vicky Doe Fitness on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other place that you listen to your podcasts. You will be notified when we post new podcasts, and you will be the first to know. And yes, we are constantly scheduling great guests to join us in talking about important topics and concerns that affect our health and well-being in our communities. And so we do not want you to miss out. Make sure you subscribe to this show right now. Also, make sure you go to our resources page, www.vickidofitness.com forward slash resources. And there you will find products and services that will be helpful to you as you embrace a life of health and fitness. And we have a variety of items on our resource list for you to check out and try. We have Reebok, Warby Parker, Polar, iRemedy Healthcare. That's a real good website to go to to get your mask, your your gloves, all the things that you need to protect yourself right now during COVID. And so we have iRemedy Healthcare. Go check it out. Spanx. We have The Right Stuff. That's another medical supplier for caregivers. Art of Tea. We have Art of Tea on that resource list. Those of you like myself that we love tea, go check it out and much more. But I want to talk about a little bit about yogadownload.com. We have this on our list. Yoga Download is the premier online destination for downloading, streaming online yoga, meditation, Pilates, bar, and fitness classes. They've been online since um, 2009. They offer 1,700 plus classes taught by professional instructors, including world-renowned yoga teachers in the likes of Anna Forrest. So make sure you go to our resources page, www.vikidofitness.com forward slash resources. And remember, when you use any of the affiliate links on that page to buy any of the products and services, you are supporting us here at Vikido Fitness. And as always, what do we say, D? <laughs> We want to thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Yes, thank you for your support. Well, Dee, it's been another week, and guess what? With all this stuff going on, you know, I have doubled up on my efforts of masks and gloves. and. Uh, you know, the surge, as they predicted for the fall, is here. Um, I really honestly didn't believe it. I said, well, you know, by this time, everybody, surely with everybody having been in shelter in place and all of that, they're going to adhere, keeping their mask stuff on. But, you know, people have gotten last and quarantine fatigue. And we're back now. We talked to your honey sweet Dr. Joe the other day. We're following each other in the hospital. We're having a surge of admissions to the hospital now to the extent that the, the old floor that was COVID floor was down to like one patient. It's filled now. All, all the rooms filled with COVID patients. So it's, it's ominous, very ominous and very depressed and very tiring. Wow. So it's filled up now, huh? Yeah, it's filled up. The whole floor now is COVID floor. Wow. Yeah. And I remember in April, there were at least three COVID floors in, and the intensive care unit in my you. I'm hoping it won't get that bad, but this is not good. It's not looking good. I know. And so, yes, you know, because I'm constantly out there, you know, teaching face-to-face class right now at Kent, you know, I try to make sure that I double up. I'm always in, you know, with my mask on, with my gloves on. If not gloves, I make sure I wash my hands and all of that stuff because, yeah. Vicki, I saw where there were 57 kids that can't put in quarantine 
Did you hear that yesterday? Is that yes? If um, a couple of people test all those folks, they do they do excellent contact tracing. So any of those folks, yeah, any of those folks that are around, they put them in quarantine in a separate place on campus, you know, and they have to quarantine, you know, that for those 14 days or so. Yeah. Wow. We are on standby in case we have to go totally remote sooner than what we're yeah, going. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, sooner than what we're going to be doing anyway before the um, holidays. So it, it just emphasizes that you know, people need to continue to wear their masks, social distance, and wash their hands. And one of the things that I put on Facebook this week is that I'm sorry to say, and of course it won't happen for the election, but if there's not going to be a mandate for shelter in place again, I think citizens need to do their own sheltering in place. And by that, I mean stay out of bars, minimize your exposure in any restaurant or any place where there's going to be a lot of people for now because it's out of control. Mm-hmm. I noticed that they're going to start allowing some visitors into nursing homes, which they may have to retract because, you know, nursing home patients are the ones that are coming in fast and serious. And not just, you know, nursing homes. I mean, you know, um, skilled nursing facilities, anything that's long-term care facilities, any of those kind of places. So if there's not going to be a, a, a mandate, which I think the governor probably won't do because of the economic reasons and so forth, then people need to take it upon themselves themselves and first the bars because I think and talking to my colleagues we all talk you know everybody loves a glass of wine but have it at home the bars seem to be in my opinion a huge breeding ground for this because there's absolutely no social distancing and you're not going to keep your mask on while you're drinking and eating right these guards probably not going to be enough when you're trying to squeeze people in and out between the sneeze guards. So I think that's probably, and a lot of places have continued, like she said, uh, like um, like some of my um, colleagues have said in other states, a lot of the bars still haven't opened. You know, it hasn't been since Mars. Yeah, a lot of the bars. But even if you're in California, I don't even think in California, talking to my sister and son, I don't think you can go to a bar in uh, California right now. Some folks are still in lockdown. Yeah, some people are still in lockdown, and their numbers are nowhere near like ours. Ohio is keeping back up to the red. I know, I know. So, yeah, everybody just be careful. That's all I can say. I know. Let's just be careful. So, Dee, what did you do other than work hard this week, huh? Nothing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <and> honey. Nothing, honey. Nothing, <laughs> honey. No, not too much. This weekend, I'm going to North Carolina to visit my mom and my daughter and granddaughter. My mother is 103 today. Yes. I have a sort of a little reunion with social distancing and masks and so forth. But she sent word out that she wants to drink some champagne. And um, we're going to try to Zoom her. And then we just found out today through one of her associates that went to Salem that she's going to be on tomorrow night, Al Sharp going to zoom her in to talk about voting oh that's great i'll send you i'll send you the link so you can watch it oh big time big time yeah yes and kudos to because um your sister put it on facebook about your mom turning 103 and i said kudos to life and longevity yes absolutely absolutely i can't even imagine i can't even imagine isn't that awesome I know. I can't even imagine. Yes, yes, yes. So what is going on this week? Vicki, everything. Everything. That's exactly it. And you know. And all you can say is the the big news was that uh, the president tested positive for coronavirus. He was initially treated in the the White House, but then nobody knows any of the true facts. But for whatever reason, he was medevaced over the wall where most of the, um, where the where the presidents are taking care of. And I think it's the new Wall Street, because I was thinking they were talking from Bethesda. The old Wall Street was not in Bethesda. That was the Navy Hospital where President Kennedy ultimately used to go and get his care was at the Navy Hospital in Bethesda. It wasn't Wall Street. But he was medevaced over there, and then he would hear from his doctor about the various treatments that he got. I think he got dexamethasone, he got, which is a steroid. He got remdesivir, which is an antiviral. 
And then he got this new monoclonal antibody called Regeneron, which not a lot of people know a lot about, but he got it. So, and he's back now in the White House. And unfortunately, as it appears, you know, there's not been any contact tracing, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. But the garden, the Rose Garden gathering for the Supreme Court uh, justice nominee seemed to be a super spreader. Mm -hmm. So we'll just have to see what happens with that. You know, they just started falling like dominoes. It's a lot of folks that have tested positive now. A lot. And now people in the White House have started to test positive for coronavirus. So it's, you know, that's what we call the super spreader. And, you know, it usually happens in weddings where they've been able to do contact tracing and, you know, other big gatherings. And, I mean, we have on film that gathering with hardly anybody wearing a mask. So it just wasn't too surprising to see that happen. Yeah, not surprising at all. But, yeah, that is happening right in the White House. Yeah, right in the White House. So he's back now, and, you know, we'll have to see who else develops it. I don't think it doesn't look like anybody else has gone to the hospital. Supposedly, Chris Christie is in, but, you know, he's not. There's no information out on him. And, I mean, quite frankly, I don't want to know everybody's medical history and story. I mean, I think it was important for us to know what was going on with the president of the United States since he is the president of the United States. And, you know, we have a lot of people out there that don't like us, and people would look for any kind of weakness or whatever to attack us or whatever. So I just, I feel that that was important for us to know. So I guess, as they say, stay tuned. Stay tuned with that. Exactly. Stay tuned. Well, there's some news out there about the Youngstown City Schools. They pair up with community partners, the Student Wellness and Success Funds to open what is called school-based health centers. I guess they're doing school-based health centers around in the Youngstown City School District. And so, yeah, many schools. This was written up um, just recently, and it talks about how many schools and districts across Ohio have strong partnerships with local healthcare providers with the goal of addressing the healthcare needs of students. And so meeting students' physical health needs is an important part of meeting the needs of the whole child and reflected and this which was reflected in Ohio's whole child framework. And that's what the philosophy that they are following with our education is called the whole child framework. And so recently, Youngstown City School District CEO Justin Jennings joined our governor, Mike DeWine, for one of his Thursday press conferences to talk about the district's partnership with and connections between the city's education and health communities. And so Youngstown City School District has partnered with QuitMed Urgent Care to open two school-based health centers in the district this fall. And so the school-based health centers funded through the state's student wellness and success funds, they complement the crucial work of the school nurses to provide to provide much-needed medical care to students, families, staff, and the community. This is important. The Ohio Department of Education has a number of resources available for those on its website for districts interested in establishing such a thing as school-based health partnerships. And so I think this is awesome, right, Dee? I do, too. I think it's fabulous. That's good. That is good. And so I guess we, they say Youngstown is one of the many examples of notable and effective partnerships with healthcare providers. And so collaborative partnerships between districts, healthcare providers, and community organizations can help districts meet the physical, mental, and behavior health needs of their students to ensure that they are healthy in school and ready to learn. Now, I do know that even at this time when we have many of the schools using remote learning models, school-based health partnerships are still an option. And Innovative Ohio released a telehealth in schools blueprint to help districts that are interested in providing services via telehealth. So yes, yeah, this is a new era now. We got to get used to still providing these 
wellness programs and health programs, even if we're not meeting face to face, you know, right through telehealth. Normal. Yeah. Right. And the good, the thing I like about this too is that it also helps to address the issue when you all when you talk about healthcare disparities. It's like, well, what can you do? What can be done? For me, this is one of the tangible and deliverable in helping to uh, deal with and assess health healthcare disparities because we know, I mean, I think that the population of our school system is probably a more African Americans and Latinx, the Latinx population, and those individuals who are not of uh, Latinx, but those and um, those individuals who happen to be Caucasian who are, you know, lower socioeconomic. So it's a win-win, I think, for everybody. Yes, it is. So kudos to CEO Justin Jennings. Yes, did we interview him? Was did he? We interview him at one of at Reverend Macklin's African American male walk. Yes, yes, we did. Yes, well, yes. When he first came to town. When he first came to town. So he's. Yeah, I thought we did right. Yeah, so he's doing the do, as we say, for our yeah. school children. Yeah, in Youngstown. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, we got early voting. It began here Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> it started yesterday, and looking at pictures, you know, um, lines were wrapped all around the building uh, in some places. I know my girlfriend, we had her, had her on the show, Dr. Lolita McDavid was talking about her. Her husband stood in line with some of his friends, and she was just, you know, talking about how he came, his grandparents were sharecroppers. And he was standing on their shoulders and, you know, people died so that they could vote. So standing in line for an hour was all price paid for what people had to go through back in the day. That's it. And so I think it's important, you know, a lot of folks, you know, have their different views as to to voting. Some people will not be voting. I mean, that is our right. You know, we can vote or not vote. We do have that right because it used to be where you couldn't vote whether you wanted to or not. So now, exactly. now at least you have the right where you can vote or not vote. But I also want to right. re- remind people that, yes, you can say you're not voting because you don't see what, what they're doing for our community, most especially our black community. And yes, you, you have that right not to vote. But also when you don't vote, you have no say-so on nothing, because remember now... Well, that's just my point. Don't complain if you are not part of the political process. Right. As we say, everything that's governed around here is based on... A lot of things are based on laws and policies, which are written and affected by how we vote and who we vote for. So that's all I have to say. Yes. So I am voting. Right. Me too. There it is. Well, D, you know, we still want to ask if there's the latest on the COVID or anything out there. Well, the latest is, um, I did forget, there is one latest. Apparently yesterday, and things happened so fast, the White House decided that they were going to prevent the CDC from going through with the guidelines that they wanted to vaccines. Now, I didn't read all of that like I said, and then two hours later, it's different. Um, but one of the things was that this was FDA. They were going to prevent FDA, is what I meant to say, and instead of CDC. So FDA wants to, most of these vaccines are in two doses. So they don't want to review data about safety and efficacy until after two months after the sex vaccine shot is given. Well, the White House apparently, allegedly, I haven't read it yet, Okay. didn't want that, thought it was too long, yada, yada. So apparently last night they reversed their decision and opinion. I don't know what got them to do it. Maybe listening to the science, you think, but whatever. Um, <laughs> that they've now gone back to agreeing with the way the FDA wants to evaluate the vaccine by waiting two months after the second vaccine is given. Maybe they listen to a scientist. You'll think? Maybe so. Maybe so. Cricket. Cricket. So that's the latest. That's all I have right now. Subject to change tomorrow morning. All right. And thank you, Dee. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood-Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second 
and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about breaking the taboo of talking about bladder problems in women. And yes, today we are talking about urinary incontinence and how we can get over and overcome the stigma by first talking about it. But we are encouraging women to go get help from your doctors and learn some of the lifestyle changes that you can do to help you ease the discomfort of urinary incontinence. Now, joining us is Lucy Brett and author of her awesome book and memoir, PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. That's the name of her book. And Lucy will share with us her story about her diagnosis of urinary incontinence at the age of 30 after the birth of her first son and all of the medical treatments, interventions she had to go through. She will offer us ways, if you are suffering, how to navigate through it and how to find help and support. But first, I looked on the Mayo Clinic. They have their website and I looked up urinary incontinence. I looked specifically at prevention. I just wanted to see you know, because the question will always be asked, you know, can we prevent urinary incontinence? And so according to the Mayo Clinic, they have said, yes, urinary incontinence isn't always preventable. However, to help decrease your risk, you can do these things. Number one, maintain a healthy weight, practice pelvic floor exercises, avoid bladder irritants such as caffeine, alcohol, and acidic foods, eat more fiber, which can prevent constipation, a cause of urinary incontinence, don't smoke or seek help to quit smoking. And yes, we know that certain things happen in life, certain circumstances happen, and you can't control sometimes whether you, if you suffer from urinary incontinence. But these are some things that the Mayo Clinic has put out there for prevention measures. Now, we always hear about pelvic floor muscle exercises, which are Kegel exercises. The pelvic floor muscles in a woman, if we want to really look at that, yes, you can do Kegel exercises and your doctor may recommend that you do these exercises frequently to strengthen the muscles that help control urination. And so these exercises are especially effective for stress incontinence, but may also help with urge incontinence. To do the pelvic floor muscle exercises, let's imagine, imagine that you're trying to stop your urine flow. Then you do these things. Number one, you tighten, you contract the muscles you would use to stop urinating and you will hold for five seconds and then relax for five seconds. If this is too difficult, start by holding for two seconds and relaxing for three seconds. Number two, you can work up to holding the contractions for 10 seconds at a time. 
Number three, aim for at least three sets of 10 repetitions each day. And last but not least, to help you identify and contract the right muscles, your doctor may suggest that you work with a physical therapist or try biofeedback techniques. As always, we always say that if you're having problems, definitely consult with your healthcare provider and physician because they will be able to point you to the right direction. But most of all, don't feel embarrassed or ashamed. Go ahead, go. We urge you to go because this problem is more common than you think. What do you say, D? It's way more common than you think. It's just something that's not discussed and women just, you know, you see it, well, you see all these ads on television with women in pads and this, that, and the other. They're starting to talk about it a little bit more, but it's still not talked about like it should. So bravo to her. Bravo. And so let us, let us listen to our interview with Lucy Brett. Well, here with us today is Lucy Brett, who will be joining us from London, England. We are so happy that she is here with us today. Lucy worked in media regulations as a film journalist and regulator for many years. And she will be sharing with us about her diagnosis of urinary incontinence at the age of 30 after the birth of her first son, thrusting her into what she describes as a 10-year journey in which her life took a detour into some of the most embarrassing, stigmatized, and often taboo areas of health care. In an effort to treat her condition, Lucy had medical treatments, operations, and other interventions, and still suffers now. Now, Lucy has her book, PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. Now, she takes us on her personal journey with her urinary incontinence, causing her to feel like her life had ended because she felt scared, upset, embarrassed, itchy, bewildered, dirty, shocked, broken, angry, and ashamed. But today, Lucy will share what women should know about urinary incontinence and ways to navigate through it and will offer practical advice about how women everywhere can find help and support. So how are you today, Lucy? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm surviving. That's good. What do you say, Dr. D? Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Welcome. It is a taboo topic. Definitely. It really is. It's been really interesting for me having written the book and speaking to people um, in the States and in the UK about it is that it still has quite a, quite a degree of stigma attached. I know. And so I'm so glad that you are here to talk about it with us. Can you share with us your story and why you decided to share your journey with um, urinary incontinence in such a personal and public way? I think my story has, it's obviously very personal to me, but I think it's also quite every day in lots of ways. I had my first baby when I was around 30 and it was a long labor and a bit traumatic and upsetting for me and I had what we would call a second degree tear, so some stitches and things. And after he was born, I had a number of hemorrhages. So the whole experience wasn't kind of, it wasn't the hoped for Hollywood happy earth mother birth experience exactly. And I guess I left it a little shell shocked and hurt. But quite quickly, I noticed I was leaking a lot. And at first, people sort of said, that's normal. Post-birth, you might end up leaking urine. And it took a good couple of months before I finally sat in front of a doctor who was like, ah, yes, you have a prolapse, you have um, what we call stress incontinence and urge incontinence. And that kind of kick-started my first nearly a year of physiotherapy. So I think you call that a physical therapist in the States. And that took me right up to my son's first birthday. And I managed to get some control back. So I was no longer doing things like wetting myself whenever I picked up my baby, wetting myself when I ran up the stairs, wetting myself if I coughed or sneezed, wetting myself 
in shops and that sort of thing. So I got much better, but it wasn't completely right. I still had to wear pads and things like a, some older women do and things like that, but I, I got a bit better. Then I had a second baby, and that's when the fun and games really began because I was incontinent during the pregnancy, and then I was incontinent after the birth, and I had a lot of physiotherapy then, and then, and then I moved it towards surgical cures or, or attempted cures. And that whole journey sounds kind of strange when I talk about it now, but it was at the time, I mean, I really felt almost like I was in a Greek myth or something, like I had been put into this strange new world that I didn't really understand because I just kept thinking, why did nobody tell me? And is this normal? And is everybody else leaking as much as me and just not saying anything? And should I put up and shut up and all those things? I forgot. I, I, I wasn't sure. Maybe I missed you saying this. Was your initial incontinence due to, did you have a third or fourth degree tear with your baby? I'm sorry, I probably missed that. I had a second degree tear um, and I had a number of hemorrhages after he was born. So I was kind of like bruised and battered, but I didn't have um, a third or fourth degree tear. So I didn't have sphincter sink the damage. Okay. Quite a lot of people who examined me said, is this your third or fourth baby? So the degree of damage to my pelvic floor was consistent with someone who'd had a lot of children rather than me on my first baby. But I think that that was just sort of bad luck, you know, rather than anything else. So a second degree tear is a little unusual to have urinary incontinence afterwards, isn't it? And I'm not forgotten all of this. I have four children, but is it usual after just a second degree tear? Well, interestingly enough, I was very concerned about that. And I asked lots and lots of people and I mean, uh -huh. uh, as is often the case with long health stories, people sort of kind of often sort of you end up with a kind of I don't know at the end of it. But basically, yeah, I didn't mm -hmm. have the sort of degree of damage you might expect for my degree of incontinence. Uh -huh. And they thought mm -hmm. there were other factors at play, including being particularly uh -huh. flexible and uh -huh. um, hypermobile and family history and those sorts of things. And they also it was when I say it was every day and quite normal. My birth was, I think, and my, mm -hmm. but I think my experience of being incontinent that young was quite abnormal. So what lots of people mm -hmm. said to me was, oh, you should speak to my mum, or you should speak to my auntie, mm -hmm. you should speak to my grandma. That's what my sort of friends said. And they were being kind, like that's not criticising anyone. Right. What I mean is, I think I did, you know, I was the youngest girl in, in, the, in the waiting room mm. at the, mm -hmm. you know, clinic. But it, it's a funny one, isn't it? So they, <laughs> they sort of said to me, kind of, um, well, maybe they were just trying to help me be a philosophical as the journey went on for years and years, sort of like it doesn't really matter how we got here. We've just got to sort you out. I mean, I did ask repeatedly if there's something I could have done. Right. And they were very clear, no. And I talk in the book about that being a very important moment the first time somebody said to me, this isn't your fault. You, you couldn't have given birth better. And I think a lot of women kind of carry that. And that might be why they don't get help, because they feel like it's their fault somehow that they're leaking a bit that they could have done it better. Mm -hmm. They could have done better kegels. You, do you know what I mean? And they were mm -hmm. sort of, they just mm -hmm. said to me, kind of in my, my condition, I couldn't have felt stopped it. So it just happened. So you were age 30 when you got the diagnosis. Is that what you were saying? That's right. And, and there was a lot of hope when I, that, that I'd be able to sort it out. And loads of women can be sorted out, as I'm sure you know, with physical therapy or quite non-invasive treatments. And if you can get those exercises right and you've seen the right people, you can be completely dry. And that just never quite happened for me. So, I, yeah, after I had my second baby, everything was completely shot and I had to go through everything again. And you asked at the beginning why I wrote the book. It was partly because I think that we should all talk about these things more. So I've just put my story out there so people can think about it. But also because through that time, as it went on, I found it very isolating and depressing and difficult and I found that incontinence mm -hmm. was much more than just putting a pad on it was right. something that ruled my life and and mm -hmm. I felt that that was never spoken about so sometimes mm -hmm. women will talk a bit about childbirth pairs and leaking and even make jokes so in the UK the jokes were always about getting onto a trampoline or a bouncy castle and that might make you wet yourself or jokes about drinking too much wine and I remember thinking at sort of some point a few years ago, just before I started writing it, like, this isn't good enough anymore. Mm. We've got to move mm. to a proper conversation where we work out, can I be helped? How can I be helped? How can I feel better about this? It isn't my fault and all those things. Wow. For so me, it's kind of one of those topics that doctors, and I don't want to cast wide net, but particularly male physicians 
don't really talk to their female patients about because I don't know what the, they don't know a lot about it. They don't want to deal with it. It's sort of like, you know, postmenopausal women in dyspareunia or postmenopausal women in sex. And like you said, urinary incontinence. It's those kind of topics that I find that physicians don't deal with those kinds of issues with their patients. Did you find, I mean, did you find your physicians to be sympathetic or not? So I'm pretty lucky. I had very good care. And obviously, I live in the UK, so I had the National Health Service. So I, there was no, um, there were delays and things, but no sense of, you know, it, it was about how much money I had or anything like that. Uh-huh. Um, and I found that people w- were very helpful. However, there were lots of interesting things that happened, and I reflect on them a lot in the book. So one was my GP, so personal physician, a family doctor. She said to me that um, in, I went and said, I had some fecal incontinence as well, so some bowel leaking. And I, that made me very depressed. And I went and saw her. And I, I mean, I remember crying a lot. And I talk about it. I describe it all in the book. And I was sobbing. I said to her, doesn't everybody get this upset? She was sort of staring at me. And she said, in 20 years, nobody's ever. She's like, I can t- I'm, she said she knew that some of her patients were really, really upset about bowel leaking and really humiliated and really embarrassed. But none of them had ever expressed it to her. And I thought, well, my goodness, because then when I looked up the statistics, and it was like one in 10, and when you look at the statistics about bowel leaking in older women, as you say, and postmenopausal women and women in their 80s and 90s, this is a lot of people who are not getting any kind of sort of, aren't being held at all in that, that situation. Right. I think the other thing, I, I saw I had very good care, and one of the physiotherapists I, I spoke to when I was researching the books, so I put, you know, I did a lot of research into, you know, how other people could be helped why we're all like this and that sort of stuff. And she said, she said, what's the most unusual thing about you is you went and got help straight away because many patients spend years making do and trying to get over it and maybe not having a glass of water before they go out and all that sort of thing. So they try to contain their incontinence. And you went straight and said, like, hang on. I'm, what? Is this really, this is what happens? You have a baby and then you just wet through your jeans every day for the next 70 years, really? <laughs> right. And... Um, uh-huh. And, and she said that was quite extraordinary that somebody would come that young and be like, so it was unusual that I was that incontinent at that age, but it was also unusual to go and get help because a lot of people just don't or not for years and years. With you writing your book and you going out, I'm sure you are um, reaching out. Are you having people responding? How, how are folks responding like women? Are they responding to you and, and grateful that you are at least putting it out there and talking about it? I think so. I mean, it's been incredibly humbling. And that's the other reason I wrote the book is that I wrote a blog for a while. And when I finally sort of started talking about what it was like to go and have tests on your bladder and what it was like to um, worry before an operation that maybe it won't work, maybe they'll send you away, maybe they'll say that you're too fat or too young or too old or whatever, you know, the sort of anxiety that goes with it and the sort of exhaustion I felt at living a sort of double life where I was, you know, working quite successful in my career, had these two kids, had everything, you know, husband, career, kids, isn't that what we were all supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And then, and I was sort of putting my lipstick on and smiling and then crying myself to sleep and leaking when I was having sex and not knowing who I was ever going to be able to talk to about it and all this sort of stuff. And, and when I even just get my toe in the water a tiny bit of talking about it, so just not that deep, um, the ex- the response was extraordinary mm-hmm. and people were contacting me through the blog that's of course anonymous and since the book came out I've been very very lucky I've had emails and things through social media and letters but what's been most I mean it's both it's amazing it makes me a bit tearful actually it's also quite heartbreaking women my peers yes but actually I've had people contact me and I realized off when I got to the end of the email that that was one of my friend's mother's who had never told her daughter about her issues. I was doing a talk and the book had just come out and a woman was telling me that she went to the doctor and the doctor dismissed her, like you said, and I said, oh, that's terrible. And she said, yes, but I suppose that was the 1970s, so I'll go back and I thought, 40 years. Mm. 40 years of something that they found really difficult. And so I think that it has made me... Well, I'm very hopeful that the book has helped. I've also had, interestingly quite a bit of contact from people who've not necessarily had incontinence issues or haven't had post-birth issues. So a couple of men um, contacting me and one sort of sent me this long letter saying that he was in 
30 and he had been a bedwetter his entire life and felt very ashamed of it and never spoken to anyone. And he said that, you know, he knew the book wasn't really aimed at him because he wasn't, you know, a, a woman having children and stuff. Um, and he said, but, you know, it was so important to me because I felt for the first time that someone had talked about this stuff. And I've also had women who've had, you know, for example, we don't talk about incontinence enough. So also people don't get help who have incontinence for other reasons like dementia, Alzheimer's, some breast cancer treatments and things like that. So it kind of gets lost all the time. And that's why, you know what you're saying about doctors? I think sometimes it's embarrassment, as you say, that they don't talk to uh -huh. I think sometimes, yeah. I think sometimes it's because it's complicated. If you start down that route, it might take a long time to work out how and why exactly it's going wrong. And I think it's sometimes because it's never the most important thing in the room for the physician. If you're a breast cancer doctor, mm. your patient in front of you her life or his life might be most affected, actually, by, for example, incontinence and anxiety and things. But they might not be the things that you're comfortable talking about. Does that make sense? I think incontinence mm -hmm. sometimes falls into the wrong places. You know, if you're going taking your mum with dementia, even though that's maybe one of the really big deals in your life, you might not bring that up with the dementia doctor. Mm -hmm. Because it would feel, patients have said that they feel like it's um, trivial. Mm -hmm. And so if doctors don't screen... Yeah and actually ask patients, then they can't do it. The other problem is, of course, that, um, and lots of people have said this about the book, is that people just believe that it's a natural part of ageing and something they've got to put up with. Mm -hmm. And I had lots of women say to me, you know, I just thought that was it. Well, yeah, I'm just sitting here. My mouth is hanging open because, like I said, this is probably the first time ever that I've really, and I mean, it's a big problem. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, a I don't want to say company, an organization in Africa that is dealing with women who have incontinence of urine and feces, and they are put out of their families. I mean, it's a huge, huge issue, and there's, you know, all kinds of physicians that have, you know, volunteered to bring these people to places in Europe and so forth to try to, but it's a, it's a big problem, and there's a big organization that's been involved with this. So I've read a lot about this, but my question to you is, what type of surgeries I mean, did you, I mean, I hear about all the slings, the bladder slings, and what other kind of surgeries are out there just for our own edification, mine and Sue's, since I'm a physician. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I mean, I'm, I'll come back to you to talk about um, fistula and problems like that, because I actually did a whole chapter in the book about that, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's my body, my life. I was interested, you know, have women... I mean, I still sort of asked the question right at the beginning of the book, you know, like, has this happened since Eve had a third degree tear and there was no one to stitch her up? Or mm -hmm. is uh -huh. it a modern problem to do with obesity? Why does it happen? So we can talk about that too. But yeah, in terms of surgeries, because mm -hmm. the history is fascinating because people have been trying since the beginning of medicine to solve bladder problems, but they're very hard to mm -hmm. solve, tricky to, to operate there, even now, even with amazing stuff. So when I had my problems, the gold standard operation for it was the TVT mesh. So that's also sometimes called the sling or the vaginal mesh. And um, it's sort of like a, a synthetic hammock that holds it up. I mean, obviously, I'm not a surgeon, so I'm sort of telling you what they told me. Okay. <laughs> but, um, and um, when that surgery was first pioneered, and it was relatively new, it was presented as incredibly successful. They had very good results. The numbers looked good. Um, very quick, very cheap. Didn't have to be rationed, even in places where healthcare is... Um, you know, isn't free at the first point of access. A lot of women have had that operation. And the thing with the TVT was I felt jealous of those women because my um, problems meant, and um, you're a physician, so, you, so, I, so, so I don't know quite what the official terms are, but as my surgeon said to me, I had too much waggle, so my bladder neck was moving far too much, so that's why I could never hold it in. Mm. And so I had what was an older operation called a birch wow. colpo suspension where they stitch your bladder neck effectively to your pelvic bone, I think. And I was jealous because my operation was a bit more involved and I was in hospital for a few days and I left hospital with a wee bag. And um, I had, and I think a lot of people have this in, in other sorts of healthcare problems, especially embarrassing ones, where you sort of get as far as being brave and going to get treatment and you walk into the hospital to have your operation or your surgery and you walk in. I walked in someone who wet myself sometimes and came out an invalid. And I just didn't understand. It was such a, I mean, crazy time. Mm -hmm. um, and I got better and the operation had helped quite a lot, but I still leaked a bit. And, I, and by that point, 
I also ended up with some fecal incontinence, not as a result of surgery. I had lots of tests to establish it wasn't, you know, I didn't get nicked or cut or anything. But my pelvic floor is just shot, basically. So I had also have lots of procedures to look at that, but we didn't do anything surgical with that. And then um, just to finish on surgery, there are some other treatments too, though. So because of what's happened with the mesh, which is that it has helped some people incredibly, but it has also been catastrophic for some women. And I don't know what the state is with court cases in the States. I mean, certainly in the UK, they've put all mesh operations on hold. And um, Oh, wow. Yeah, and the evidence seems to be that that for some women it's devastating because the mesh separates and starts clawing and tearing into their organs and things and causes pain and difficulty moving. And one of the problems with the mesh, with the results that said it was so good, was that the the measure of success was, is the woman incontinent anymore? And so you had this really difficult position, and I I spoke to women who this had happened to, who were no longer incontinent but couldn't walk. Mm. But because they were no longer incontinent, it had got its tick. Does that make sense? So it, Mm -hmm. it was still seen as this gold standard and it's I mean in the UK it's quite a big deal at the moment because because of some of the court cases and because I don't know whether you're having this in the states but it's almost like a sort of I describe it as a roar like you can hear this noise and it's women in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s who are getting quite cross about medical misogyny and getting quite cross with going to the doctors with heavy periods or incontinence and being told that it's a normal part of their life or being ignored and so they're, they're doing a lot of work around that and the mesh is a devastating example so we had a government review and and it just revealed all these women who had gone to the doctor and said that they were in terrible pain being just told to stop being hysterical and go home for years mm. so wow. it's tricky but it's in and i think it might be similar in, in australia it's it's also difficult because i think a lot of the mesh um that they've removed from women when they've tried to remove it you can't always remove it if it's gone wrong but a lot of that actual mesh is tied up in court cases. So we're still a way off completely as far as I can tell. I'm not an expert or a researcher knowing exactly why some women react so badly to it. But it's certainly a case of another thing happening to women that, that hadn't been properly researched. There are some of the new ones. So I had a different... My most recent two treatments were... Um, I had what's called a bulkamide injection, which is where they inject a sort of saline sort of jelly stuff into your around your blood and neck which sort of secures it bolts it out and I found that quite helpful and that and that helped me quite a lot and then I also used a pessary a ring pessary which I had also sort of been told was for much older women and that you wouldn't be able to have sex if you had one and I was very afraid of sort of consigning myself to this sort of sexless state at the age of 40 or whatever but with that and the final one I've got to a point where I feel I'm in control of it so I don't feel afraid I'm definite that I'm going to wet myself if I go to the supermarket. Wow. If I had a really bad cough and a cold, I would wear a pad and hope to get home all right. So I, I've got to that stage of managing it now. But it took me a long time to feel able to even talk to you. I think even when last year, I would have cried telling you all of that. And I haven't, not because uh-huh. I'm not upset by it. But I've managed to find a way to... Incontinence is so difficult. It's so taboo. It's so embarrassing. It's so yucky. It's expensive. It's all those things. And, and, um, and it's quite devastating. I felt devastated. I didn't feel like a proper woman. I didn't feel attractive. I didn't feel lovable. I didn't feel sexy. And I, I thought I'd never have any of that back. And it took a number of years, really, to decide, you know, that I wasn't going to forever chase something and keep cutting myself up. Because for me, I had gone probably as far, as far as I wanted to go at this point. But if another operation came out, then let's find out. Maybe I would. But I, I would want to know what was going on. And I wanted to just feel, I don't know, like I could move beyond it. Because before it was treated, it was just dominating my entire life. I can imagine that. But tell me, though, has this book, just you writing the book, putting it out there, has it been kind of therapeutic for you? Has that helped you as well? I think it really did. And um I'm quite, uh, I'm sort of, I'm a bit reserved, like, which I know seems odd, given I wrote a book about my funny yeah. and vagina <laughs> and everything, but um, I actually, I you don't you know, sound I, reserved. It, yeah, you don't sound reserved. I had to build up this, yeah, I had to, I, well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so, so I, I built this up and I've got comfortable talking about that, but I would still blush if, if somebody broke wind, I think. Okay. 
but yeah but and also I don't know it's like that sort of British sort of slightly cynical thing um I was a bit afraid of kind of gratitude and mindfulness things like that I just kind of thought they were I was a bit cynical mm. um and I was cynical about the book being therapeutic or curative I think for me yes it did it helped put it out there it made me feel like there was point to it and actually I felt very lucky to have the opportunity to look into the bigger picture and as you say the thing is the last third of the book is actually all about relationships with doctors with medicine how we discuss these things and why so many women can't even like you say slightly brash confident women like me why why couldn't I talk about sex and incontinence until much later in my journey for example I couldn't and I didn't want to put it in the book really and and People, a couple of the people I spoke to researched and things, they were sort of saying, please do if you possibly can, because people will not talk to us about it. And then we hear these awful stories of women who've left their marriages, of relationships falling apart, of all the, you know, their husband or wife leaving them, all this sort of stuff, and that was sort of preventable, but they hadn't done anything. And so I felt very lucky to kind of get the chance to look through it, but also look at the bigger picture. And like, as you said, there are some places in the world where the sort of injuries that are rare these days, if you have good obstetric care or midwifery or whatever is the system in a, um, where you live, but it's, it, there is a, a degree of medical um, care around. Mm-hmm. These women in some bits of the world, especially if they were married as children, mm-hmm. so their bodies aren't really big enough, they can end up with these birth injuries that are pretty horrific, mm-hmm. but then simply aren't treated. and are walking, So they're left completely incontinent bowel and bladder walking around and if they're unlucky cast you know away from their home even and and I spoke to a charity called Freedom from Fistula mm-hmm. and they do a lot of work going and helping women and they're using this yeah. operation that was developed hundreds of years ago it's quite a straight it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating history of sort of medicine how many centuries people spent trying to work out how to cure these injuries and now if you had that in a u.s hospital somebody would stitch you up straight away Mm -hmm. you know it wouldn't be pleasant but you would sorted but these poor women aren't and this woman from the charity said that oh as a charity we're very big on touch i said what what why and she said because some of the women we treat haven't been touched for years Mm. and she described meeting meeting someone and she said that she was the first person to hug her for five years or something The reason I brought that up uh-huh. in terms of your question about why I wrote the book, whether it was curative mm-hmm. and whether it helped. And um, I think what the last part of writing the book and thinking about it and learning about it, what that did for me is it made me absolutely convinced that wherever I can, mm-hmm. whenever I can, I need to start the embarrassing and tricky conversation. And, and I might not like doing it, although I, can, I know I sound very practiced at it now, but mm-hmm. that's because I just decided, okay, then I will. I'm going to because somebody's got to because we can't live in a world like that. Mm-hmm. That's how, that is terrible. And what? And if we don't push, then nothing will change. We have to keep pushing it. And that starts with all of us thinking about our own bodies, you know, and thinking what what help can we get? And as it's amazing talking, it's been interesting since the book came out in America, talking to so many doctors and medics and physios and people who work in the state, because you're very engaged with this. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. It's really heartening for me, especially hearing doctors and things saying, oh, you know, this is interesting, what about this? Because in the UK, it's been, there's been some real interest from physical therapists, particularly, mm-hmm. and some from midwives. But the other people, it's been harder to get them to engage with it mm. in some ways. Maybe they're scared that they'll feel blamed or something. I don't blame anyone. I just think we've got to move on more positively now. Right. Mm. I, I just have one last question, Lucy, when I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about, and just kind of like think about both people from different countries, the perception that we have a lot here in the United States Maybe, maybe it's my perception, but, you know, that you guys, you Brits, you know, you're, you're sort of a um, let's carry on with it, you know, kind of like just off there. Let's, you know, continue to move on and don't, well, was that a, is that a factor there or is that the stereotype that I'm bringing up? Yeah, yeah, totally. So that whole sort of keep calm, carry on. Yes, exactly. So, um, yes, yeah, stoical, basically. So I think that's a huge problem in the UK. And I think that feeds into this thing. If, you've, if we don't talk about it when you're young and when you do your education at school, you can get straight A's like I did, but not really understand how your bladder works and how close it is to other parts of you that might get damaged when you have a baby and how your pelvic floor works. If you can get all the way to 30 and read all the pregnancy books, not 
really get understand it, then, I mean, there's no hope for any of us. And Mm. if you'll then add to it, like you times it, as you say, that's what I mean by that sort of British reserve. Like, so I just was like, maybe I just have to put up with this. And so when I finally saw a surgeon a few years into my journey, after I'd had both my children and stuff, and and he said, how long were you in physiotherapy the second time? And I told him. And he he couldn't believe it. He was going, why didn't you just say, like, this is completely unlivable with? And I was a bit like, well, I didn't want to make a fuss. Mm. I didn't want to to carry on. so in the UK also carry on can mean like um, go on and on and on about something or make make too much of a hullabaloo about it. But yes, I didn't want to make a huge problem out of this. I didn't want to be too grabby or get too attention seeking. And I think a lot of women in the UK, but maybe elsewhere as well, feel a bit like that. Feel like especially when women hit the menopause, they're sort of con- we're conditioned, but it's a normal part of being an old lady leaking and actually it's very common it's common Mm -hmm. it's very treatable Mm -hmm. and my story the most unusual bit is that physio didn't work for huge amounts of people some physiotherapy with a physical therapist can completely sort you out well listen I am so glad that you came to our show today to talk about it yes also before you leave you know yes it is an embarrassing situation there's social stigma when it comes to urinary incontinence but where would you tell folks of course we want folks to read your book but where else would people uh, women can get help and support do you have some type of hotline or what would you tell folks first of all don't panic because there's loads of help out there I don't know all the specific sites in the States, but certainly in the UK, mm-hmm. um, the pad manufacturers and people have quite interesting websites. A- anyone who makes kind of devices that are for using with your pelvic floor should have some information. But actually, probably the best thing to do, mm-hmm. it is embarrassing, but is to go to speak to your family doctor or to a physical therapist and get them to have a look because you could spend loads of money and spend hours and hours doing pelvic floor exercises or kegels or whatever, and it not work because your problem is something different. So get it checked and then go and get help. There's loads of websites. I mean, the British ones, there's absolutely loads. The Kegel 8 website's really good. Australian Continent Society, if you just Google that, they have an amazing thing with videos and women um, and physical therapists describing exactly how to do the different things and things like that. And the other thing I would say, because this helped me, I mean, it almost sort of politicized me about it really, is that... It's very easy to feel alone when you've got something that's making you feel a bit anxious and depressed. And incidentally, if you are feeling a bit anxious or depressed or down about being incontinent, that's really, it's documented too. That's not you, not a flaw about you. It's not you not coping. It's because incontinence causes those symptoms in women and men. But also, if you look at the statistics, it's like around one in three women worldwide. You're not alone. Everyone's feeling, feeling quiet about it. And a lot of people you know will be going through it. Because I think mm-hmm. I certainly felt that I, I remember it so vividly standing on a hill in London looking out across London and thinking I felt like I was the only woman who was going through that and I thought there must be something so wrong with me that I can't cope with this just part of motherhood. And that was a lie. That was a lie I'd been conditioned to think and I just would want anyone listening to know that help available, know that it's mostly very straightforward and know that they're not alone. And as, you know, just Google, yeah, Australian Society. I think there's an American Continent Society. There's a Canadian one that they will have. They will be a good first port of call for what's around in your area. I know that people will be listening in different places. Tell us, your book is on Amazon. And and what is your book? What's the name and all that good stuff? <laughs> okay, so it's 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 on Amazon. It's in, I was so excited because I'm, I, you know, I'm so, I find America so glamorous. It's in Barnes & Noble. It's on lots of the, you know, all, all good bookshops. And it's called PMSL, which is an acronym in the UK. But PMSL, or how I literally pissed myself laughing and survived the last boo to tell the tale. It's, it's very elegant. So you, people won't know you're reading a book about incontinence if you want to read it. And my name is Lucy Brett, but the Lucy is spelled L-U-C-E and then B-R-E-T-T. And I... I just hope it helps. Also, at the back of the book, mm-hmm. there is a list of things you could say to your doctor if you feel that it's a bit embarrassing to say incontinent or you don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Even just to highlight the thing and show them. Because I think if people can't find the words, there's some words in there to start you off. Um, you, you can't say, mm, I'm pissing my pants. You got pissed in your... Uh... <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, I always think, like, in one sense, you probably could. I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't swear too much. I mean, my book was, yeah. I did have one doctor. I said, does everybody talk like this? And she said, no, but I mean, especially not the swearing. I don't mean. <laughs> Well, yes, we are so glad that you called us, Lucy, and that you are telling your story. Yes, and I know that you are inspiring and helping a lot of folks, a lot of women that have kept this a secret for a long time. What do you say, Dee? Uh, absolutely. Like I said, I started out saying it's a taboo topic that I'm glad you're bringing to light. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Also, there's a chapter on men because I didn't want to leave them out because I think men no, are right. ignored in the constant to. discussion too. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Now, this ends our show, Dee. So do you have some tips that we should think about? Yeah, Vicki, it was a fascinating interview. I mean, I really learned a lot, even though I'm a physician. I, you know, it's not my area of specialty, but I am a woman, and I know women who've had similar problems. And, you know, it's, again, like one of those things that women, physicians don't know how to talk to patients about. And I'm glad she wrote her book um, to give a shine a light, as Dr. Fauci said about COVID, shine a light on an unacceptable situation. So it was great. Thank you for bringing her on. Yes. Kudos to Lucy Brett for sharing her story. We want to encourage all of you encourage all of you to go on Amazon, get her book. It is called PMSL or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. So this is written by Lucy Brett. And I want to encourage you all to go get the book, go on Amazon, get the book. I loved it. I love that Lucy has come out. Now she said that she's, you know, kind of what? Not what what did she shy or something, but I didn't pick that up. I didn't pick up that she was shy about this at all, but right. no. No. no, so <laughs> but that's good. I'm so glad that she is sharing yeah. this with yeah, us. Absolutely. It was great, that's it. And as always, for more information, go to our website, vickidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook. And share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.